This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at uctv.tv slash careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and those in career transition bridge to better employment. Our first speaker is Elizabeth Gonzalez. She is the Portfolio Director at the James Irvine Foundation. The foundation invests in nonprofits in California in support of their mission to create and empower opportunity. The San Diego Workforce was very honored uh, two years ago to receive an investment, uh, a grant from the Irvine Foundation for of a million dollars that allowed us to boost our youth and young adult employment program called Connect to Careers and also the groundbreaking work we've been doing to address the opportunity youth or disconnected youth crisis that we really have across the country. Some 5 million or more uh, young adults between the ages of 16 and 24 not working and not in school. That number locally is around 41,000. We have Petco Park here close by. Imagine every seat there filled with a young adult not working and not in school. So we have to reconnect. And, uh, and the James Irvine Foundation has, has really empowered us to be able to do much more work in that area and create more opportunity for all. So Elizabeth has devoted her career to championing the needs of individuals and families who are not reaping the benefits of our thriving economy. She brings the rigor of research and the passion of a social justice warrior. I also get to serve with uh, Elizabeth on the Link Learning Alliance, and it's great to know this amazing lady. So please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Gonzalez. Good morning, buenos dias. I, I want to first thank uh, the San Diego Workforce Partnership and, and Peter for the invitation to share um, some of the work that we've been doing at the James Irvine Foundation. As he shared, I am a portfolio director there overseeing our education and workforce efforts. Um, you know, I wanted to share a journey that we've been on to both continue the mission of the foundation, which has always been to build opportunity for our fellow Californians. That has always been the mission of the foundation since 1937. But over the last two years, we've been on a journey to ask ourselves, given the issues of today, given what we know is happening in the country, given the challenges and opportunities that are in front of California, what could we do to strengthen our focus? So um, over the last two years, we've been listening, we've been looking at data and asking ourselves, you know, what would it take for us to actually create a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically? And so what I'm going to share today is just some of the deep listening work that we've done across the state um, um, in order to do that and to, to actually, again, sharpen our focus to really get at that vision. So um, Peter just talked about that, and it's why now, and I, I have to say, as I was preparing for this talk, some of those, the data that I'll share today that is really informed where the Irvine Foundation is going is a bit of a downer, you know, but, but I hope that it also is a sense of urgency that it provides us all um, to do the work that we do every day. So I just want to acknowledge that, that um, I'm about to, you know, share data that many of you have probably have seen over the last um, uh, several years. So, you know, for example, I don't think any of us could be, will have been at a conference the last two or five, you know, last five years where we haven't seen the data that Raj Chetty of Stanford has provided us around um, really the fading American dream. Over the last 20 years, the chances that our young people will do better than their parents has been fading precipitously. Um, and that's our reality. We run the risk 
of actually having a, a permanent um, uh, underclass of, you know, of young people who will not do better than their parents. We've also been tracking for many years, the foundation has been involved in work around civic engagement and governance. The, just the challenge of voter and um, civic engagement not being uh, really a reality for our folks that have less education. So that economic reality, this civic reality has really driven us to ask ourselves, what would it take again to create a California where law, all low-income workers have the power to advance? And so you know, these two data points have been, um, again, really informed our work. And as many of you know, you know, California, as much as we epitomize the promise, our diversity, um, our creativity, we also are in a moment in time where we epitomize that inequality. You know, you see here that income has risen very much for our top quartile, but at the same time, our bottom quartile's um, income and earnings has, um, has really dropped. And, and this is California. This is all the California that we... Um, wake up for every day, we aspire to change. Um, But I want to present that, that these data points have really um, informed us as a philanthropy, as a California philanthropy. Um, You know, in addition to that work, because you could spend your day sort of looking at data, what's the economy telling us, you know, what what are the changes? Um, We wanted to do something different. You know, in philanthropy, we don't have a ton of accountability. I'll just say that really honestly. You know, really honestly, um, we have an IRS. We got to pay 5% of our endowment every year. But we have an incredible strong leader, and we've always had leadership at the foundation that says, how do we hold ourselves accountable? What are the practices that we need to take on to ensure that our accountability fundamentally is to the constituents of California? And for us, that's low-income working um, workers and families and, um, and job seekers. And so over the last two years, in two ways, we've been doing some really deep listening work. Um, in California to really give us a more qualitative picture, a richer picture of what's happening to our families in California. And we did that in two ways. Um, In 2017, we embarked on a series of listening sessions throughout California. We partnered with our local nonprofits who work in service of low-income working um, families in California. And we did a, a series of learning sessions throughout the state. It just gives you a little bit of what we were, what we were doing. We had 14 listening, um, community listening sessions with over 400 Californians in 10 languages. So we really, we were all, we were in the northern, central, and southern part of the state. And in these conversations, you know, we'd ask questions. What do you dream about? What does your everyday look like? What would it mean for you to have your children do better um, than you What's your dream of owning a home? What would that require? Why is that hard? What is your work life um, like? Here's some of what we heard, and you'll see um, in that uh, right-hand corner um, some of the reports and the um, really wonderful videos um, that were produced. And so you can, you can catch more of that. But I just wanted to give you a snapshot because one of the things that struck us so powerfully in this, in this phase of the listening work was the incredible human dignity that our people, our Californians have every day to wake up to two to three jobs, every day to wake up not knowing if they're going to be kicked out of their apartments, if they're going to be able to provide and imagine a different future. Because let's be clear, while I'm you know, sharing these quotes, what was a constant was, 
I came here so that my daughter could go to college. I worked those two jobs because I want to be able to pay for my son's soccer club participation. So these quotes are difficult ones around people's sense of representation about what they're able to provide for their families. But no, dignity was there constantly in in the face of that challenge. Just another quote here around how people are really desirous of political representation of their needs being heard. This is some of what we heard in Los Angeles. And here's what we heard in Fresno. You know, you're just a number nowadays. You're, you're replaceable. And again, these are families that, again, wake up every day, two or three jobs, are not getting paid um, a family-sustaining wage. And so even, even with that, there were um, real engagement, a real sense of what the future it is they want for their families. Mm-hmm. And so we did these listening sessions, as I said, um, last year. What we also did this year, and some of you may have seen this, and you can find this report at the PRRI.org, the um, Fading American Dream. We commissioned PRRI to give us just a bigger snapshot of working Californians. So they surveyed over 3,000 Californians, um, California adults, as well as uh, 1,000 of those respondents were working and struggling with poverty. And what we meant by struggling with poverty are those that are living at 200% of the the federal poverty line. And so we did you know, the survey with PRI just to get, again, a, a bigger, fuller picture of what's happening to Californians. And I'll just present a couple of slides again. The report is on the website, PRRI.org. Again, I just shared you know, many of the folks that, we, that were interviewed are, are working and struggling with poverty. Again, waking up every day to get paid and not being able to make ends meet. There's a lot of data here, so I'll just call out a couple of things here. You know, what we heard, just like we did with our, learn, our listening sessions, is a diminishing belief that with determination and working really hard, that they're actually going to be able to move, um, to move up in the world. Interestingly enough, though, they still hold on to a belief that their children will. And so think about that. You know, you've got families saying, you know, it's harder. Actually, in one of our data points, 60% of the workers we interviewed said, I'm not, I think it's actually harder to do it in California, but I love California. I still want to be here. I believe my children will do better. We have public systems. We've got community colleges. I want to stay. You know, I still believe this is um, a reality for me. But this is also the reality, is feeling that no matter how hard they work, they can't get ahead. Actually, before I leave that, I, you know, I did want to share one thing that has, that has struck me so often, whether it was in the survey or in the listening sessions, which, again, has really shaped the direction that we're moving in, which is advancing the cause of low-income workers, is the sense that our families are in no-win situations, right? If we're lucky and we have an education and we have a good job, we have to make trade-offs, but the trade-offs don't you know, move us down a road where we actually can't make ends meet. And that's what has struck us so much with the families that we, we met with, that we listened to, which is whatever choice I make, whether it's I can't pay the rent this week, I can't pay for my son's practice, I can't um, go visit my, you know, my family in another country, because there are challenges, all of those lead to a picture of 
despairing, yet wanting to hold on. So I just wanted you to think about that, that whatever choice they make, they feel like they can't, they can't win. Um, so what are we doing about that? These are huge problems. So what I'm going to share is that is we are starting this journey to um, imagining a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. We're at the beginning, but we've started with two initiatives uh, that we just launched this year. So I just want to um, share those with you. And those are two that we believe together um, help us advance, um, advance the cause of our low-income Californians. And both really revolve around the world of work. Better careers, connecting low-income Californians to family-sustaining wages and opportunities to advance. And fair work, engaging low-income workers to secure the wages, the rights, and the protections that they deserve. You know, both of these together, we talk about it internally as both having raising the floor of work for our low-wage workers who, you know, put in a day's work, deserve a day's wage, as well as imagining ladders for those workers that have a high school degree but didn't finish college and maybe don't need to, but if they have the right training, are actually ready for those jobs that pay. So we think of this as our floor and our, you know, creating floors, you know, raising the floors and creating ladders. And those are our first two initiatives in our in our new work. And this, again, you know, why... The economy, even with its challenges, has, has grown to create some job opportunities. And I know the San Diego Workforce Partnership has done a lot of this work to identify that there, is a, there, are, so, there are jobs that actually don't require a BA degree but pay a family-sustaining wage. And we believe, given that there's up to 1.6 million workers that have a high school degree and some training, if we give them the right kind of training, they could be ready for those jobs and that those jobs can be transformative for their families' lives. And so that's, you know, that is why we are focusing there. We're also um, looking at fair work. Well, you know, as a funder, it's very exciting to say, oh, let's, let's fund in the area where we can have an immediate impact. We can't forget that over 5 million workers in California make, uh, make less than $12 an hour. So that is a huge footprint in our economy. So it's important for us that we also do work to ensure that workers get their fair, um, their fair wages um, for a fair day's work. And so that's the, other, that's the other why of what we're doing, because we believe that's just really important for the future of California. What I have here is just, again, as a philanthropy, the way we're trying to hold ourselves accountable is to actually show our board be able to speak to you the impact we're having in California. And so this just shares what we're holding ourselves accountable to in these two initiatives that that will exist for um, the next seven years. We want to see you know at least 25,000 workers in family-sustaining jobs, as well as uh, strong partnerships between community organizations, employers, and public agencies to ensure that workers uh, get their wages. And so this is what we're holding ourselves to. But again, we are in early days, and so we um, just launched this work that was very much shaped by grantees, by stakeholders like the San Diego Workforce Partnership, who has actually been an incredible thought partner to us as we continue to shape this work. So these are our two first initiatives. It's early days. There are two things we're really excited about and we actually think are critical to the success of this work, and that is partnerships. Employers, job seekers, public agencies, educational institutions have to work together differently in order for us to meet these goals. And that's what we're excited. We're excited about a lot of the movement around apprenticeship 
you know, that is a model that actually is built on those those actors working together. And in Fair Work, we have a really strong partnership with the Labor Commissioner, who is working with worker centers all across the state. So again, partnerships that are critical for this work. So I want to leave you and say, we are not going to solve this problem by ourselves. We Certainly philanthropy is, you know, you hear this often as a drop in the bucket, but it is the long-term vision for us to continue to say what, what was a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically is our longer-term vision. And we'll believe that vision starts with our initiatives, but you'll continue to hear from us that it really is a social compact between the public and private sector that we all owe, that we all owe a commitment to each other to ensure the well-being of California. And on this day that is so challenging, I just want to leave you with the visual. These young people are California. So I just challenge us, what will we do differently to ensure that the promise of California stays for these beautiful young faces? Thank you. The James Irvine Foundation is, is just remarkable. With philanthropy, of course, they can put their resources really anywhere. And they choose to do this hard work. And I just admire them so much for taking this on, working with non-traditional partners, people uh, like us and organizations like us, many in the room, who are really advancing this and, and share these same values. So we're, we're just thrilled at, at their commitment, their, their heart for this work. Right now, I want to... Um, Welcome to the stage our board chair, Phil Blair of Manpower San Diego. Uh, He and his work partner, uh, Mel Katz, have built the largest manpower franchise in the country, and they do phenomenal work. Phil is an author and speaker and TV, radio, you name it. He, he should be a billboard himself. He's just out there all the time. But he does it for the right reason because this is the shared value of getting people into great jobs, great careers. And he takes time uh, on his own, volunteer time, to serve on our board, to be our board chair. And he has a great passion for this work. So please join me in welcoming Phil Blair. Thank you, everybody. And Elizabeth, thank you very much for your presentation. It's, uh, it's really an eye-opener to, to hear the statistics and third party telling us what the issues are and what we can um, possibly do about it. Because we've got to understand the issues before we can know how to deal with them. And so um, Irvine puts its initiative and its influence and its money behind these issues. So we're excited to have our relationship with, with the Irvine Foundation. As Peter said, I'm Phil Blair. I'm the Pleasure being the chair of the Workforce Partnership this year. So um, on behalf of our board, I want to welcome you here today. The, um, the issue we see is the national and San Diego economy have really never been better, right? Unemployment it is, is low. The stock market, although it's very volatile, is, as we all know, who would have thought up 500, down 400, up 500 would have been a normal day um, before. But it's doing well. The economy's doing well. It's doing well longer than we ever thought it would, right? The, the cycles, we're into a second year. Everybody's optimistic about 2019, but with, with fingers crossed. There's an old phrase I used to say that, um, that I've really modified in the last couple of, of, of months, and that's a rising tide floats all boats, right? And that's a very good visual that you see everybody getting better as the economy improves and companies are better and profits are better and um, wages should be getting better, which finally they are. 
But we were in Indianapolis a couple of uh, weeks ago at a, on an EDC trip, and I used that analogy of it, isn't that wonderful, in a presentation, and somebody said, you know, that works great if you're in a boat. Right? I mean, to me, that was an aha moment. And I thought back how many times I've used that phrase, and nobody called me on that, um, which was a lot. But that visual, and that's what we're here today, because there are people standing on the shore. And to sort of grow this, the visuals here, when you're standing at the beach and the tides are coming in, right, this, the sand, you get deeper. Your feet start sinking in the sand. And how many people that we're going to talk about today that are struggling to get to 12 or 12.50 an hour or aren't on a path to get to 18 an hour. So that's who we're talking about because we need to get those opportunity youth and lots of other people. We're going to hear about homeless issues now. We've got to get them unstuck from the sand and in a boat. And there's lots of boats and we all have our own version of a boat, but we've got to get them into a boat because... I'm a business person, right? We place thousands of people in jobs. I've got my fingers crossed what 2019 is going to look like. But when it does slow down, and it will, and I hope it's not for five years, but when it does slow down, those people stuck in the sand have no hope because there's going to be thousands of experienced people fighting for whatever jobs are left. So we're really about those people stuck on the shore getting them into a boat, and then improving their forecast and their opportunities in this community. So now I want to introduce Councilman Chris Ward. Chris has taken on this cause of homeless, and um, we talk about it's a, how do you eat an elephant bite by bite, and what is the San Diego Workforce Partnership's bite? How big is it? How little is it? What can we do on this topic? So we need to understand the topic. We understand how bad it is. We need to understand what Irvine Foundations and other funders are doing and what government funding can do. And Chris is going to share with us his thoughts about homelessness in San Diego and how we can all help those people get onto a path of success. So, Chris, welcome to the Pope. Thank you, Phil. Well, thank you, Phil, and good morning, everybody. It is really so exciting to see such a huge attendance here this morning on this topic and everything else that you'll be touching uh, this morning at, these, at this forum. Thank you so much for being here. I do want to thank Peter and Vicki at the San Diego Workforce Partnership for having me as part of this morning's agenda and take a couple of minutes to speak with you all about the areas of homelessness and workforce development, how they intersect, and some exciting work that was just underway uh, as of a couple of months ago. It's so important uh, to help help uh, integrate workforce development programs as someone, an individual's critical path out of homelessness. So first, let's look at the numbers. We know that countywide on any given night, we probably have about 9,000 people experiencing homelessness, the fourth largest homeless population in the county, and about half, a little over half of that is here in the city of San Diego, around 4,200, with about half of those living on the streets. And of course, just downtown alone, where we see the greatest densities on any given night now, we have about 700. It's getting better. It used to be about 1,200 on downtown streets about a year ago. 
ago. So we are heading in the right direction, but we have a long ways to go. We've implemented a few interim measures at the city council, like our bridge structures that we see in the East Village and the Midway in Barrio Logan, so that 700 people are no longer on the streets but are receiving core critical services and trying to make sure they're established with case management. We've recognized some of the bottlenecks there. That's housing to get people out of the shelters so it frees up a bed so that we can get somebody else in off the streets. So we are definitely trying to move on some of these interim measures and really turn them into a system that works. Ultimately, the end of the goal is permanent housing, and we need more of it. Particularly some of the most vulnerable population, permanent supportive housing is the kind of model that we're going to be going for. But there's others out there that perhaps just need a lighter touch, particularly those who are at risk of becoming homeless. And so one of the overall challenges that we're looking at in managing homelessness from a policy level and a budget level is diversion. It's just stopping people from becoming homeless in the first place. Many of these individuals have been caused, uh, their homelessness has been caused by an unexpected medical bill, a lost job, uh, something economic in nature. For those individuals, we have a model called rapid rehousing. It's a program that often sees some of the best results, and uh, these are light touch programs. So with rapid rehousing, somebody receives a rental assistance for about 6 to 12 months in time with the expectation that some of the services attached will help them uh, be able to take over the rent over time uh, with their own income. It's a great program. It's been a model for success in so many other communities across America. However, here in San Diego, we know that People that exercise rapid rehousing programs as they first get um, as they first come into the program, about 25% of those individuals have steady employment, and at the end of those six to 12 months about 25% of those individuals have steady employment. So we're not doing a really good job of maximizing this light-touch, cost-effective opportunity to work with some of these clients and connect them with workforce opportunities that are really going to help them take over the rent, no longer need that subsidy. So to fill that gap and ensure that those that, uh, that want to work are trained and given the tools necessary for successful employment, we introduced a pilot program in conjunction with the Workforce Partnership to connect, first, connect workforce development and rapid rehousing programs. So what that looks like currently with the rapid rehousing programs, you have a case manager, you have sometimes a housing specialist, but th- that one person is also asked to be a job, uh, a job, a workforce specialist, somebody that's out there finding jobs, somebody that understands understands clinical and social service needs, really a jack of all trades. And if we can use somebody that actually is an employment specialist coupled with a housing navigator, we think that we're going to have far, far greater outcomes and much more successes over this program. So we've developed a pilot to really look over the next two years and find sustained employment for 300 family rapid rehousing clients. And I'm confident we can reach this mark mainly to due to the collaborative efforts of many of our stakeholders. As I mentioned, the Workforce Partnership is the lead entity on this pilot program. They are providing the workforce specialists and have helped fund the program through an existing federal grant. The Regional Task Force on the Homeless is serving as a coordinating agency and will be connecting our rapid rehousing providers with the Workforce Partnership and the Housing Commission. So if anybody is out there is hiring, let us know. Now is the time. I'm deeply confident that because of some of the early response that we're seeing in this pilot and I'm very, that we're going to see success, and I'm very appreciative of the generosity from foundations in the private sector, particularly the Lucky Duck Foundation, that got us off the ground. And as I mentioned, permanent housing is the goal to end anyone's homelessness. 
to get there, we need to come together as a community and make sure that our support systems meet in the middle and fill in any of those gaps. This is solvable, but we all have to come together as a community, put all of our resources on the table, and part and parcel to that is to make sure that we're being very smart about our employment services and our workforce development programs. So you are a critical component of ending homelessness, and you have strong partners at the city, the regional task force, and right here at the Workforce Partnership to get the job done. I'm so excited that you all are here today. It's going to be a really instructive program here this morning. Thank you for what you do for the community, and uh, thank you for your opportunity to have uh, a little bit of a greeting here this morning. What I love about Chris is As an elected official, oftentimes it's hard to get to the elected officials to share our story, to talk about solutions. And oftentimes you just can't get through. Uh, There's there's different reasons, different priorities and issues. But Chris called us over a year ago saying, I got we got to sit down. We got to figure something out. And we met with uh, Andy or Andy Hall. You'll meet in a minute. And uh, and Chris and. And he is laser focused on really making a difference. You would think within workforce development that we in our space are, are doing this across the country. Actually, it's very rare because what happens with silos where we serve a certain population of, of different workers, if you will, and the, the people who are experiencing homelessness have many other issues in order to get ready for work. But we need to bridge that gap, and it just takes commitment and effort and political will, and we're going to make it happen. So this, this pilot we're, um, we're going forward with is really going to set the standard for the country, and I, I want to thank Chris again for having the vision to be able to do that, the commitment, the willingness, and to, to provide leadership. So so thank you again, Chris. So our next frontier is audacious and trailblazing. When realized, it has the potential to unlock the talent and futures of thousands in our regions, in our region, if not millions across the country. I'll let my colleague Andy Hall, our COO, tell you about it. Andy has a deep passion for systemic and lasting positive change. A brilliant, determined, and caring guy, his dedication to work has ruined an already shaky golf game. Please join me in welcoming Andy Hall. All right. It's good to see so many people out here that I know, so thanks for coming. It's pretty much impossible to go to one of these events and not... Uh, have some experts debate uh, how long it will be before robots take over our jobs and we're relegated to a life of servitude and universal basic income. Um, And they can opine, and we're not going to do that today, so you're welcome. But the one thing that pretty much all experts and labor market economists and workforce development people think about and talk about and agree on is how important lifelong learning is um, for our world today in the 21st century innovation economy. And um, the days of going to high school, um, getting your degree, um, and then working in your job for the rest of your life and retiring uh, are certainly look to be over. And lifelong learning is the name of the game. So how do we pay for it? There's a lot of good things going on with the community college system um, around free community college. And so our community college colleagues in the room, a little shout out. Your work is commended and needs to be supported and accelerated. Um, Other ways that we pay for lifelong learning is we ask families and workers to pay for it out of pocket. Um, There's federal grants uh, and there's loans. So let's talk about those three things real fast. 
you heard it from Elizabeth. It's becoming increasingly hard for California families um, to pay for upskilling out of pocket. Four out of ten Californians are living in or below poverty. And we are in first place in the, in the country in that. We actually have the, most, um, the highest percentage of, of families living in poverty of any state in the United States when you adjust for housing costs. Many of these working families are, or many of these families are actually working. 80% of these families are working, and so they're one root canal away or one fender bender away from financial ruin. So asking these families and these workers to finance their upskilling so they can get their piece of the 21st century innovation economy um, is, is not just bad for those families and those workers, but it's bad for business as we kind of fight this global war for talent with one hand behind our back. The other way we think about upskilling and worker retraining is federal grants, and this is a big piece of our business. Peter has talked about it. We um, fund millions of dollars over the last 40 years in worker retraining grants for upskilling. Over the last 17 years, there's been about a 50% cut nationwide in those funds. And so the ability for us to continue to finance that is going down while the need for lifelong learning is going up. And, you know, advocacy and budgets and trends and forecasts are all kind of political and business exercises until you kind of see the human being on the other side of it. And that's what I had a chance to do recently. Every year, our research team, we survey every single person, the thousands of people leaving our job centers. And we get pretty good response rates, actually. We had about 1,400 people responded and said, we asked them two simple questions. And one of them is, were you satisfied with the services you got? Uh, 85% said yes, which is pretty good as these things go. And 15% said no. I read every single one of the, the comments of those 15% of the people who said no. And uh, one trend stood out. The, the biggest reason why people were not satisfied with their services is because we ran out of money to fund for their lifelong learning and their upskilling. And this particular uh, open-ended comment stood out to me, and I'll, I'll let you read it, uh, but it, it just absolutely broke my heart. Like this, this young lady, this was in November 2017, she said, uh, you know, I did a career aptitude test. I confirmed my desire that my, uh, my skills and interests and values aren't aligned with the, my current career path. I want to make a switch. I want to continue to learn. Um, I was also eligible for training. And, and for those of you know who are in this business, most eligibility is driven by poverty or severe barriers to employment. So this person really needed this. Um, but we couldn't provide the training because we, didn't, we ran out of money. And this is happening increasingly as the federal budget continues to be cut for this type of work. So that's the way two. Way three is loans. It's a big problem here. There's $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. I think um, myself and many of you in the room are probably still carrying student loan debt, and you have your own horror stories in your family about, um, about student loans. And it doesn't, no matter what, where you get your news, it doesn't really, um, you don't have to look very hard to see the impact of the student loan debt, not just on families in our economy, but um, or not just on families and workers, but on our economy as a whole. And it, it turns out that uh, student loan debt is actually perpetuating historical wealth gaps um, by gender and by race and ethnicity. One example is uh, new research is kind of piling up that black student debt holders um, are 150% more likely uh, to have more than $100,000 worth of debt. $100,000 worth of debt. So kind of just to talk about some of these big trends and to sum them up, you got the need for lifelong learning is, is increasing to be successful in our economy. The ability for family and federal grants to pay for it is going down, in California in particular. And the student debt crisis is hurtling towards 
um, what's probably going to cause our next recession. And so kind of when you think about some of those mega trends and when you hear the story of the young lady who said, you know, I, I needed a career change, but I just couldn't get it. There wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity for me. We have to develop another option. And the one that we've been looking at for the last 12 months with some partners that you'll hear about is called income sharing agreements. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. And at a very basic level, what an income sharing agreement is, is that um, if I'm going to go upskill, let's say I'm going to go try to learn coding and the cost is $10,000, instead of me paying for that out of loans or my own pocket, a third party, the school itself, philanthropy or uh, impact investor, will front the cost of that, that my education, and I agree to pay X percentage of my, my, um, my income uh, over a set given period of time. Um, and there's a couple other key terms that uh, make this really interesting for us. One is a minimum income threshold. Um, so there's a predetermined level that if you're not making above a certain amount, um, you don't pay a dime on that given time period. Um, the second kind of big important term is the payment cap. Um, so if you do really well after your, your program, your education, and you're making $200,000, dollars $400,000, you're not going to pay an exorbitant amount because there's going to be a payment cap that's, that's pretty clear, and I'll talk about how we're thinking about that in a second. Um, the fourth kind of really important definition of an income sharing agreement is the payment term. How many payments will you make? That one's pretty simple. And then fourth is the payment window. How long uh, is this income sharing agreement in effect? Um, and when that payment window is over, whether you've paid not even the original balance or nothing at all, um, the, the obligation is, is, is over. And so we are kind of really thinking about this for, one, for a lot of specific reasons. But the thing that really got me interested in this, kind of thinking about some of those megatrends, is that the student debt system, like many of our uh, kind of mainstream financial instruments, are inherently regressive. Uh, those who take out loans and go through programs and do the worst after that program in the labor market and make the least money end up paying the most as they miss payments or make minimum payments and interest and fees stack up. They end up paying the most. And those who go through the program and do the best and make the most money end up paying the least because they pay, uh, they pay their principal off really quickly. Um, ISAs, by contrast... Um, with the protections that I'm gonna t I just talked about, are inherently and philosophically progressive. Those who go through the program and make very little or nothing at all pay very little or nothing at all. And those who go through the program and it does the best for them uh, pay the most uh, uh, with the payment caps. And so, like, by their very nature, they're really, really interesting because they, for the first time, not for the first time, but for a really specific way, they actually link the cost of higher education and lifelong learning with the value that it provides the student um, in the labor market after the fact. And we were really interested in linking that cost to value. Um, so that's kind of ISAs generally, and they're not new. I, the, I think the University of Purdue University in Indiana is, is one of the biggest um, uh, examples, they've financed over $10 million, I think, of ISAs for hundreds of students, and the returns are, are looking pretty good, and dozens of other universities are, are jumping on board over the last couple of years. Um, but in San Diego, we've partnered, about nine months ago, we, we worked with UCSD Extension to explore what this could look like in, uni in workforce development. Um, and before, there's a lot of decisions to be made when you're trying to model one of these programs, and so we said, before we get too much into the details like, let's think about some things that are non-negotiables so that ISAs, if, launched in San, if and when launched in San Diego, are really going to make good on that progressive promise that they potentially offer. Um, and so we put some stakes in the ground. We said, number one, 
that minimum income threshold has to be informed by the local cost of living. Um, and so what we said is that no, even after a payment, we're never going to ask someone to make a payment if we don't dramatically change their economic situation, even after those payments are recouped back to us. And so in San Diego, that looks like if someone's not making $40,000 or more after the ISA, we're not, we're, we're not going to ask them to pay a dime. Uh, two is the payment caps are in line with student loans. So when you think about the overall payment ratios of student loans, even federally subsidized, they're about 1.4 to 2.0, meaning if I borrow $10,000 student loans, I'm paying between $14,000 and $20,000 back at the end of the day. We're going to set our payment caps for the highest earners, um, depending on the program, in that range. And so we're not taking exorbitant fees from those who are doing the best. And when I say taking, I'll talk about it, but we're actually talking about paying it forward for the next people going behind them. Third, and this one's, this one's important, no credit checks. You know, being poor is really expensive. Being poor is also really bad for your credit score. And we fundamentally believe that uh, kind of past financial history should not dictate someone's future opportunity and future prosperity. And so we're not going to have credit checks um, eliminate anyone from participating in programs funded by ISAs. In criminal history, we do a lot of work in the reentry system, and we're going to work one-to-one with every single person um, coming out of the, every single one of our returning citizens who might be interested in this um, and seeing how we can kind of design the program that, that meet, best meets their needs. And then it's on us to work with progressive hiring managers who are willing to give returning citizens um, a second chance. Um, and then fifth, we're really focused on competency-based um, requirements to get into some of these programs. And so we want to really shift how we think about talent away from pedagogy, i.e. where you went to school and, and how, you, how you paid for it, and towards competency. What, can you do the job, and do, you have, and do your skills have labor market value? And so entrance examinations into some of these programs that I'm about to talk about are going to be really focused on competency. Um, and last, and I think really important as we kind of talk about this uh, kind of radical inclus- inclusive model for ISAs, is built-in career services. And so baked into that, most ISAs really just cover the classroom training costs, but we're building in a wraparound supportive services to help someone um, continue with their career during the education piece, but then afterwards with job placement um, and even a small fund for barrier-busting things like uh, you know, transportation or interview clothes and that kind of thing. So that we're, oftentimes we find with some of the hardest-to-serve populations, the most valuable thing about our services are not the classroom training that we might be able to pay for, but it's the human connection of someone believing in you, pushing you forward, and getting past some of these barriers. And not only is that good for the family and the student, but it's also actually good for the health of the fund if we're trying to talk about creating a fund where people are paying it forward. Um, and so we think that's really important. And so we did a lot of work. We crunched a lot of numbers. We're working with UCSD Extension and uh, a group called Vimo to help model some of this for us that does a lot of the ISAs all across the country. Um, and we, had, we, we came up with a, a term sheet for one of the programs we're looking at. I, I won't read it all to you. You can see it. But this is what it looks like. Um, from like, And you would compare that to a student loan. And I did. I went to uh, many of the individuals in one of our programs we call Tech Hire. And we said, hey, like, how does this stack up with your experience? Is this something you'd be interested in? And I focus group with about 12 people. And a couple things stood out. One, they understood the concept. Um, hopefully you do too. They understood the concept faster than I could explain it. They said, oh, yeah, my payment rate's this. My, okay, like payment caps, this. Okay. Um, so that surprised me. Number two, they all had their own story about 
uh, student loans or paying out of pocket for some kind of education uh, after high school or college that just did not turn out, and that's why they're they're coming to us. Um, one woman in particular, uh, she's she was in her 30s, I think, and she kind of she looked at me and she was kind of ma- like visibly upset, and she was kind of recounting um, how she and then she told me how she went to her family, her parents and her aunts and her uncles and her grandmother, actually, and pooled together $12,000 to pay for a coding boot camp um, to a a coding um, course. She took it about nine months ago, and she completed it. And then she came to us without a job, and she's $12,000 out of pocket. And she's coming to us looking for a job while the coding camp has its money, and they're moving on. But they didn't really provide this person any labor market value. This option resonates with people who have been fighting and scratching and clawing for their piece of the American dream, but have also been asked to take the risk every single step of the way. Um, This resonates with them, every single person that I talk to who who would be in this situation. Um, So here's our vision. Again, working with UCSD to explore how this could work. Um, Launching next year, in early 2019, $650,000 of philanthropic capital we're going to use to launch four programs, Java programming, medical coding, um, data analytics, and business intelligence for 100 students. And then the next year, we're going to scale with $1.3 million of philanthropic capital to 200. 2021, we're going to diversify for a couple more programs, in particular with our teacher shortage and a a few specific occupations like uh, math and science, as well as bilingual teachers. We think the economics really work to create a fund, as well as a few other programs we're looking at. So we're going to be exploring that in 2021. 2022, uh, this is the best part. We're going to be able to be sustainable based on the financials that we've put together with philanthropic funds from those people going in the program in the beginning. And for my nonprofit people out there, every grant that you write at the end, it says, like, how are you going to sustain this work? And we like say the three G's, right? We say, oh, we're going to do a golf tournament. We're going to do a gala. We're going to like hire a grant writer. Um, like that, like that's fine. Like we'll, we'll still write that. I mean, I write that all the time, but this is true sustainability where we're asking for those who the program has changed their life, we're asking them to pay it forward for the next cohort of people coming behind them. Um, and so that is real sustainability, um, and we can lose the golf tournaments. Uh, and then scale. I mean, you, it's not hard. I don't need to explain how you can see this model scaling um, with the data that we would get from it as every, every single month we're getting real income data on how some of our folks are doing in the programs and making adjustments. Um, and I'll just close with, it's absolutely time for this. It's time to rethink how we finance higher education. It's time to rethink how we link the cost of lifelong learning with the value it's offering to the students, the customers. And it's absolutely time to intentionally design that for inclusion. Thanks. I'm Laura Cohn again from the Workforce Partnership. And I'm Dita Quinones. I'm a parent leader for Parent Voices, and I'm a full-time single-parent um, journalist. So um, I first want to say uh, thank you again to Andy. The income-sharing agreements work that we're doing is I'm super excited about it. I talk about it everywhere I go. It's the second most exciting thing I think we're doing after the thing we're about to talk about. 
I'm just kidding. It's, it's really amazing. And, um, but we're really looking forward to talking to you about this intersection between childcare and workforce. So let's think of some pairs. So there are, there are two things sometimes that go really well together. Like um, Halloween just happened, so I'm thinking chocolate and peanut butter because miniature Reese's, Reese's peanut butter cups, they're my favorite Halloween candy. Um, and then there are other pairs of things that aren't just complementary, they're completely interdependent. One doesn't happen without the other. So, for example, voting and democracy. If you don't have voting, then you don't have a democracy. And childcare and work are in that category of interdependent things. Um, if you don't have um, work, if you don't have parents who are working, then you don't really need childcare so much. Um, and it goes the other way too. If you don't have childcare, or if you can't afford childcare, or if you can't find good childcare run by people that you trust and believe will take good care of your children, then you tend not to have parents in the workforce. And this is a big problem. I suspect that many of you in this audience, I know I did, I'm a working parent now, my kids are above childcare age, but when they were in that zero to 12 childcare zone, it was a struggle for me, and I'm confident that it was a struggle for many of you as well. As connected and interdependent as these two things are, you would think that our systems, the workforce system that San Diego Workforce Partnership is part of that helps people get into work or move up to the next level in the work that they're doing, and the child care system that helps parents find and afford child care, you would think that we would be as interconnected as those two ideas actually are, and yet we haven't been in the past. In fact, um, until recently, when, when you as a parent would come to our career center and tell one of our career agents that you need child care in order to work or in order to take advantage of the training opportunity that might be available to you, um, we, might hand, we might have handed you a flyer about child care or advised you to call 211, and that was sort of the extent of um, the support that we would give you in that need. But um, I'm happy to say that that's all changing now. For the past um, eight months or so, we've been, uh, the, these two systems, child care and workforce, has, have been meeting together in what we call the two-gen work group. So the two-gen work group includes many organizations who are represented here today, and I'm excited to see you here, the YMCA, Child Care Development Associates, Neighborhood House Association, First Five San Diego, the County Office of Education, um, 211, I'm sure I'm forgetting some amazing partners. And we've been figuring out what we might do differently, how our systems might start to work together better to serve working families. And um, so we're really excited about this. The idea of 2Gen is that when we start doing this better, when we start serving families instead of us serving job seekers who happen to be parents and the childcare system serving children, when we start serving families as a whole unit, everybody's going to do better. The parents are going to be better able to go to work and they're going to be more reliable workers when they get there. And the children are going to grow up healthier, better supported, um, with better child development along the way. And there's even a deeper level of impact. When we have our working families um, working, earning income, more secure, and knowing that their children are well cared for, 
they're less stressed. When parents are less stressed, then children's brains develop in a more healthy way. So better mental health for children and parents means better futures for children. So it's really important work, really powerful work. And to um, bring it alive for all of us today, um, Dita is joining us. Um, she's going to share a bit of her story so that we can think together about, this, about how work and child care are inextricably linked. Um, so Dita, could you just introduce a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, so I'm a parent leader for Parent Voices, and I am a single parent, full-time single parent. Um, I'm raising my son on my own. Um, I'm a full-time journalist, so I'm working. And, um, you know, I am the new face of poverty. Um, I'm glad what Elizabeth showed you guys earlier is that, you know, keep the, the fading American dream. I'm feeling that every day. Um, my... I'm not, I don't fit the typical profile of what you would think, um, somebody who goes, is going through homelessness or living in poverty, you know, being a single parent. Um, you know, and just to localize it, um, I'm, I'm, I was raised right here in San Diego. Um, I went to school um, at Mission Bay High School. I graduated there with honors. I love school. Um, I, I'm, be, I'm a very curious person by nature, and um, I always love taking pictures. So, you know, I, I moved to Los Angeles to get my, my bachelor's degree in, um, in cinematography. Um, thereafter, I went to UCLA to study broadcast news. Um, didn't finish my program there because didn't really like that program, and I had student loans crippling student loans, and so I, I needed to do something um, big, and one of those things was like, I'm going to move to New York, I'm going to work with magazines out there, that was my, you know, that was my goal, is that I was going to hustle out there, um, get my money out there, and make a career for myself. Um, I did great out there um, for maybe seven years, and then the recession hit. The recession hit. Um, it hurt a lot of journalists. Um, I was working in entertainment news journal journalism, and a lot of people lost their jobs, including myself. You know, and I thought, <clears throat> wow, like, I finally made it. I felt like I finally made it, and my dream was alive, and, and then to get hit by the recession. I wasn't making money like I used to, and so, you know, I took whatever little savings I had, and I moved all the way back to Los Angeles. I moved my whole apartment back to, um, with all my belongings, all that. And so I tried to start all over in Los Angeles. And it's kind of hard talking about this. Um, and so I found some work. I wasn't earning as much as I used to. I wasn't able to pay my student loans like I used to. Um, and I, was in a, I got in a relationship. Um, it was an abusive relationship. And I found myself pregnant, too. And, you know, when my son was born, I... It was a wake-up call that this is not the life that I wanted to live, um, and I feared for my life. And then I wanted I wanted to have safe I wanted to have a safety plan for myself. Um, it's not it something I never planned on. I never thought I was going to be a single parent. I never thought I was going to be poor. I mean, I had a college education. I didn't think I would find myself in these in these um, in this type of situation. Um, so I moved back to San Diego, and I, that was my entryway in um, being a single parent and. Um, trying to na navigate and trying to find the balance of working and childcare. Yeah, so um, tell us about coming home to San Diego and how childcare and your efforts to relaunch your career here in our community, how they intersected along the way. Um, 
it was it was really difficult and challenging. I mean, um, being a woman of color in um, journalism, it's 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 very competitive. Um, and then on top of that, I was a single mom with, with a newborn, and you know I was really scared about what my 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 outcome was going to be be for my future, um, monetarily. Um, and how I was going to be able to make it. Yeah, I had my family here, but I was bouncing around from one, one family member's house to another family member's house. I was, I was always independent. My parents raised me to be an independent go-getter, you know, but now I had to you know, raise my son, too. How do I work full-time and have a child? So I really just freelanced um, and worked from home until I could find some childcare um, through uh, the preschool um, so that I could start working outside of the home. Great. And once you had that um, care, it's a preschool, but it's a full-day preschool at Educational Enrichment Systems, which is another amazing partner of ours. They are. Yeah. So what did that, what did that open up for you when you had, when you had your son um, cared for by people you trusted most of the day? Well, I strategized, well, how is I going to get in back, back into working? And I wanted to leave entertainment news and go into something more um, hard news. And it literally is like mo- a hard move to make, to transition from that and going into broadcast television news. And um, so I, f- I found out um, about, you know, about getting food stamps, I had I found out about transitional housing. Um, those are things I never thought I would have to access. Seriously, and you know, I I I was done with moving. You know, moving from people's houses, um, family members' houses. I wanted to be on my own, and the the thing I needed to really just like su- and just suck it up. And I when I admitted myself into a shelter, I was there for a month um, with my son, and and then thereafter I. Um, um, got into transitional housing for 18 months, and that's when I was able to find out about EEC, and um, our advocates are here, Blake and Celine, and my son is here also. Um, and I'm very thankful for them, because it. when I went back to school for broadcast news to get certified, because I told you I didn't finish it earlier, and I was like, I gotta finish that. So, you know, I'll probably that'll probably help me out a lot. So I was going to school um, more than full-time because um, I wanted to get it done fast. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to get out of, out of this welfare system because um, you don't get a lot. People think that, oh, people are milking the welfare system. For myself and my son, you get $300 for food stamps, and then you get $500 as a cash. So $800 a month, how do you do that with the child? That means you can't afford rent. That means you're bouncing around from people's homes, and I had to access going into a shelter. That was the reality. That was my reality. And I guess that's what I hope to be able to, with my story, is that it'll break the stereotypes and hope, hope that it opens up your heart and open up to do the math of the reality of what people like myself are going through. Um, but that having that subsidized childcare because I was so poor, I was able to access it. Um, but you know, during the internships, getting unpaid ter- internships, it was hard balancing all of that. But luckily, I did have the subsidized childcare, so my son was taken care of, and it was really a peace of mind. A peace of mind, and also get, made it possible for you to pursue school and yeah. um, do those internships. And now you're employed full time at NBC. That's correct. Yeah. Childcare journey isn't quite done, though. No, it's not done. Um, <laughs> Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I've, 
I got out from the internships. I worked my butt off. But I got to tell you that, you know, working in the hard news, and I was telling you that being a single mom wasn't easy. I didn't tell them for a year that I was a single mom. Um, during one of my assignments at, um, at Southwestern Community College, I had a cooperative work experience class. And one of the assignments was that you had to interview somebody that you really, really, really admired. And that person was Soledad O'Brien. Um, some of you may know her, some of you may not, but she's like somebody I really looked up to as a journalist. And um, you know, I had to ask her this question. I'm like, well, how am I? The anxiety of telling them that I'm a mom, and that I'm a, you know, that you know there is no nobody else. It's just me really raising my son on my own, my own income. And um, she's like, you know what? You don't tell them. You wait till you get your job because there's going to be discrimination. I was going to get judged. They were they would judge like if you would be able to work the hours, if you were even capable or smart enough to do the job. You know, I didn't have my son when I was, you know, in my 20s. I had my son when I was 35. So I did the the you know the goal of like you know have your career first and then have your child. You know, so I, I try to do the right things. So. Ah, the irony of that, that Soledad O'Brien advised you that. In part, it's because she knows that employers don't trust that parents will have reliable care and will therefore be reliable workers. And I have to say that, you know, like work, single working parents, they have everything to lose. So they're more motivated. I'm, I was more motivated to get things done. I was more motivated to, to be the first one to, like, catch the story. If you need a research on that story, let me do it first. Like, I worked on everything that I could, and I never told them, like, no, I can't, I can't come late at night to, like, help out. Like, I, I made it happen, and, and luckily I had my family here so that if I had to do a late-night shift, they, my son would be over there, you know, in safe hands. So, Dita, thanks so much for sharing your story. I know all of us are really rooting for you and your son. Thank you. Um, and, and we're confident that you're going to really thrive in Thank life you. because of the determination that you've shown. Yeah, determination, and you know, this this year, like I, I didn't never thought that I would be able to do it, but you know, I finally submitted for the Emmys, and I won my first Emmy, and and I that that Emmy really wasn't about the award; it was just about that that was the first for my family. I was the first one to get that for our family, and to be you know to be able to make it. So I hope that, you know, it, it shows a little more determin- the determination that we have as single parents to really thrive in, in the workforce. Well, um, I want to let everyone know that the 2Gen Workgroup is not just meeting and talking. Um, starting this month, the Career Center Advisors are helping all of our parent job seekers sign up for subsidized child care. We're starting to um, think about some some deeper and exciting programs that we're not quite ready to announce, and we're working towards true system integration, where when you enroll with us, you also are getting co-enrolled. The eligibilities you earn with childcare, for example, would carry over into our workforce system as well. We're going to knit it together the way it should be for families like Dita's and her son. Thank you so much. Thank you. Was that amazing? Wow. Uh, Dita, uh, as a, a parent, uh, that really resonates with me. I have two young daughters, 15 and 11, and we're lucky. I have uh, my wife, who's my hero, who's uh, caring for the kids every day, but to do it on your own is so daunting. And for you to persevere through all those challenges is really inspirational to all of us. So please give it up again for Dita.
And a big thanks to Laura. She joined our team a year and a half or two ago and has brought this work, this knowledge, this expertise, this passion. And she's really helping us forge new frontiers again that are, is very non-traditional in the workforce development uh, system. So much more to come because this is really central to being able to serve people and families to help them all succeed in, in the very best way and uh, to reach that uh, American dream that we're all about. So really excited about where that's going and much more to come. So next up, our next frontier innovates where we can also make a very profound difference. Financing, contracting, and evaluation. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exciting area. It's something you don't always think about when it comes to innovation, but it's, it's the mechanics of how this world works that allows us to be innovative, like you saw with Andy's discussion around ISAs. When we do the operational aspects in new and different ways, we can make really amazing impacts. So we're fortunate, very fortunate, to have Carolyn Whistler here to explain how important this is. She is a remarkable and wicked, smart, really cool young lady who founded Third Sector Capital Partners to bring radical new thinking alongside practical implementation to do public-private partnerships across the country. And we had won a, a grant in order to get the technical support in order to administer the pay-for-performance model, which, which Carolyn will speak to. But I hadn't yet met her. <clears throat> and lo and behold, I was able to go to the Harvard Business School for a week-long immersion session that they put on annually for nonprofit directors across the country and, and the world. And lo and behold, one of our case studies was pay-for-performance highlighting third-sector capital partners and Carolyn Whistler. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This person is uh, doing such innovative work that the Harvard Business School did a study on them, and we had a great discussion, and I was able to speak up to where we were going with the work, how innovative, and now to have her here and to be able to partner with her so that we can really implement this, this innovation is, is really exciting. So please join me in welcoming Carolyn Whistler. How many of y'all remember Schoolhouse Rock? Well, we're going to do a recap. The bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And if they vote for me on Capitol Hill, well, then I'm off to the White House where I'll wait in a line with a lot of other bills for the president to sign. And if he signs me, then I'll be along. All right, bill to law. And we can't forget the happy ending. He signed your bill. Now you're a law. Oh, yes. But is that really where the story ends? Is this the happy ending, truly? Where the real work comes in is after that bill becomes a law. When appropriations get made and that federal bill turns into a dollar bill. And in the case of workforce funding, it makes its way from the Capitol to the Department of Labor, to California, to San Diego, to the San Diego Workforce Partnership, to the job site, and then finally, to a person. A real person, John, that this dollar's trying to help. Now when that dollar gets to John, it proudly says, hey John, I've got a resume workshop for you. And John says, well, that's great, but I'm not sure that's what I need. You see, I just got out of jail last month, and I don't want to go back, and 
I need a job that not only you know, is a paying job, but I need to cover my rent. I need to cover my expenses. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to need to go back to school and get some additional credentials and training. Can you help me with that? And the dollar bill goes, well, I'm here for resume workshops. That's my job. That's what I can do for you. But really, it's not the dollar's fault. The dollar wants to help, right? John needs the help. So how can we make it so this federal bill that became a law and then became these great dollars that flow all the way down to San Diego actually are able to help John? And so that was the question that San Diego Workforce Partnership and Third Sector set out to answer three years ago. And our answer was, let's change what dollar bill can pay for to help John. Now, it wasn't easy. It was this idea of, hey, could, could we actually take this prescription that came down from the federal government and make it more flexible to meet John's needs? Could we do that if we also use the data we have to show we're accountable to improving John's life? What would that actually look like? And then how do we put it in writing? Because we all know you get what you pay for, and it's got to be written in that contract. So the Pay for Performance project we worked on with San Diego, Third Sector actually helped go through this performance-driven process with San Diego Workforce Partnerships contracts. And it started with asking a question, how many Johns are there? What do we want to help John with? What do we want to help him achieve? What are those outcome goals? Now, instead of that being resume workshops, the goals were, could we get John not only a job, but to actually increase his wages above minimum wage? Could we get John to be enrolled in continuing education? And could we keep John out of jail? Those were the goals that San Diego really wanted to measure and track and to encourage providers to do and achieve for John and others. And so those were the goals. And we then looked at the data and partnered with service providers, with probation, other county departments to make sure we had that information to know whether or not we were actually improving John's life in this contract. And then San Diego had to decide, well, what are the incentives? What are the incentives for the service provider to actually move the needle on those outcomes? And how can we reward providers who are moving the needle not just on delivering the critical activities like resume workshops, but actually achieving those goals and those end outcomes that we want for John? And so we decided to write in bonus payments as well into that contract for those outcomes of increased wages, increased education, and reduced recidivism over time. And it took a lot of work, and it seems like bureaucratic work, to actually rewrite those contracts. And so you might wonder, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it? What really happened on the ground after all of that? Well, the result of launching this pay-for-performance project was that instead of the service provider tracking their transport receipts and logging every hour that an individual like John spent in a resume workshop, they were able to innovate with their intervention. They were able to provide trauma-informed case management for John and others like him. They were able to directly work and connect them and pay for connections into the education system. And most importantly, they were able to find an adult that would wake up every day and care about what John was doing and whether or not he was making progress. So when I think about is it worth it to go through that system change work with the money, yeah. 
because the real happy ending here is not that the bill becomes a law, but that John is on a pathway to thriving. Now, the other piece of the story is that San Diego is only one of two counties in the country. The workforce board is one of two workforce boards in the United States that is currently taking this pay-for-performance approach. There's about a billion dollars in workforce money that comes down every year from the feds to states to local workforce boards. And the vast majority of that billion is still being spent on activities and workshops that may or may not be actually helping people like John. And that's just how the system works right now. You've got that workforce silo that's pretty prescriptive with the workforce funding, which we've heard about. You've got healthcare funding that might fund some mental health for individuals that need it. You have housing funding that's completely separate. And it's all siloed because every time we write a bill, it's for that particular agency to deliver out that particular set of activities. And it ignores there's a human in there that you're slicing and dicing and leaving gaps and not able to actually meet the needs of the community. So what Third Sector does and what we did in San Diego is we're trying to move those dollars from here's what I can do dollars coming down from the feds to how can I help dollars? We're trying to move into a place where you can have a more holistic braiding of funding that may originate from silos at the top, but man, when it gets down to the community where the money meets the people, we need to figure out new ways to braid that funding together to meet the whole needs of those individuals in the community. Because if we don't, then we're leaving money on the table, big time. And so what Third Sector has done uh, we've been around for about eight years, and we've been trying to build this movement and this story with communities like San Diego to show that another way is possible. We don't need to follow this prescriptive bill becoming law and going down to that federal funding all the way to the local level. Because of advances that we have in data infrastructure and analysis, we can actually hold local communities accountable to the goals you want to achieve with that federal funding, but give them flexibility to innovate and do what it takes based on the local context at the ground. And so while we partner deeply with counties and states and, and increasingly the federal government that's interested in this approach, what's most important and where the real work happens is here. Because it's here where you have folks like the Workforce Partnership that say, hey, wait a minute, we know we got that prescription, but that's not what John needs. Let's flip this. What can we do for John? And how can we work now with the state, with the feds, to make sure that we have the flexibility to do that? And most importantly, it's here where young people like John and where families are experiencing these systems. And it's here where you have an opportunity to show that they can actually deliver results for what they need. And so we've been uh, excited and proud to move $365 million so far in this way, in this country, to try to show that it's possible. A different way of funding the system is possible. But we've got a long way to go. There's been about a billion dollars that's moved to outcomes in this way that's accountable and flexible and human-centered. But every year in this country, there is at least a trillion dollars that goes out the door for health care, for housing, child welfare, human services. And it's an enormous opportunity. 
whether you're a local government or whether you're a service provider, every public dollar that you receive is truly an opportunity to align those resources with measurable results for communities in need. We owe it to those communities to do that. And so what I leave you with is this. Let's work, continue to work in San Diego, what I call community up and federal down, to really empower the workforce partnership, others outside of workforce. It's not just workforce funding, child welfare, housing, healthcare, to embrace this accountability but innovative and flexible approach for funding that's on the ground. Let's tell this story. You guys have already done this. You're so far ahead of the rest of the country. Tell the story to the federal level about how you don't need more prescriptions in silos. You can start the funding up at the top, but once it gets down to San Diego, let's start with the people first and what their needs are and turn those dollars into how can I help dollars that are accountable versus here's what I can do dollars. And I think if you all can do those two things in San Diego and if other communities can do this around the country, that we will have a real shot at ensuring that this trillion dollars that goes out the door every year can actually make a difference in the lives of people in this country. Thank you. Wow. Uh, that, it's just amazing because the potential to be able to deploy these funds in, in ways that deliver real outcomes and serve people is transformative. And it's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart to want to enter this public-funded system. We're not all public funding within the San Diego workforce. Many of the boards within this system, I talked about the 550, are largely federal funding. But we've been able to innovate beyond that with other partners, the city, the county, private sector, and philanthropy. But we need thought partners and and partners like Carolyn and Elizabeth and others who really see there's another way, there's a better way, and we can leverage, maximize, and really have profound impact that we never dreamed of before. So the potential is there. We have to be willing to say yes or let's give it a try instead of no, that doesn't fit our contract. When we do that, we have the potential to really change outcomes for years and years to come. So that's why we're so excited. Hashtag this is workforce. I've seen a lot of activity. Please keep it going. Twitter away. We really need that. And now we're going to be um, setting the stage for uh, a panel discussion and want to welcome up to the stage my good friend uh, Omar Passens, who is our vice chair of our workforce board. And if you don't know Omar, you should, because he is a, a change agent, if there ever was, deeply committed to our community. And, and also, if you want to know anything about craft beer, it's a little early in the day, but this is the craft beer guru, uh, if you have any questions. But he's a wonderful guy, very committed, and welcome Omar Passens. Thank you, sir. What I'm going to do is just ask a couple of quick questions and then just have the audience. Uh, there'll be a couple of people walking around with microphones. If you have a question you'd like to ask, just, just raise your hand. Um, two other real quick points. Every time you hear somebody say the word daycare, remind them that it is quality child care that we're talking about. The Federal Reserve Bank um, in, I think, Minneapolis uh, did a study. James Heckman, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, did another study. They both uh, developed this very important basic point. Up to 23% year-over-year return. Increase 
in income of the family who gets high-quality child care for their young person. Think about that. We're at a workforce conference talking about child care, and that's an example of why. Up to 23% return in terms of increased uh, lifetime earnings. That's a huge deal. And so what I'd like to do is just now flip over here. I'm going to work through my notes here. And maybe just first go to uh, Elizabeth. And um, I'm curious, as you went through this process that you just described and, and uh, maybe listening to, to Dita's testimony about that two-gen exploration, uh, was there anything that you heard from her that you're hopeful we can change in the next few years through partnership between philanthropy, local government, and nonprofit to really sort of elevate that two-gen work and improve what we're doing in the uh, workforce? Yes, and thanks again, uh, Dita, for sharing what's a very personal story, and we don't always have to do that to be moved, and I think that's very brave to, to share that. I would say, you know, one of the things that philanthropy can do is take risk with things, you know, that are riskier or that are untested. And one of the, I've been motivated, super motivated by this conversation and the examples that have been given where public and private sector players come together and say, you know, we've got to be better about how we serve our communities. We're willing to do this. We're willing to put this on um, on the table and we need some dollars to actually help that come together. And I'm speaking very broadly because I can think of various examples, but with the example around childcare, like what Dita was sharing was bringing together the way workforce and childcare and social supports should work together. There aren't incentives to do that. I think what philanthropy looks for is for um, communities, cities to come to us to say, we want to have this kind of impact. We want more workers. We want to solve the childcare problem, but we need, we need the kind of dollars to help us organize and plan together. I think that's the thing that I that I um, think about a lot is that I think philanthropy needs to do a better job actually of saying that's the kind of thing we fund, that we fund the riskier endeavors um, like the ones that, you know, we talked about today. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's actually particularly helpful um, for, for me. Uh, I really love it when we're at um, workshops or conferences or panels where people can leave with a concrete thing. They can go back to their office, back to their, their people, their team, whatever, and be like, here's something new that we're going to do that will help. I just want to sort of toss that softball up to you and just ask so that people have a very clear idea. Here's something that we can do with what we heard today. From a systems level, what you can do is develop more of those examples that can go back up to your state to the feds where a lot of the money is originating from um, that comes down to San Diego workforce boards or others. And again, the intent is that it doesn't, is that it does do good. And if you can create the use case, the proof point that shows, look, actually the way you were funding us was not helpful, was not allowing us to move the needle for families. So we did this different risky thing. And I would say, take the stories you already have in San Diego, lift them up to the state, to the feds. I know it seems like, oh, we're just going to go and have a conversation. Do it. Follow the money. Where did that money come from? Go talk to the folks who run that funding stream and deploy it at the state level and say, hey, we did this as a pilot. We'd like to do this with all of our funding. What do you think? What would it take? And that's the hard next step work of tell the story, but tell the story to the folks who control the funding and where it's meeting the people and where it's meeting your community. And we found that starting that way, community up, you actually start to get in conversations with the state, 
with federal folks that are writing the rules for this, and they go, oh, my gosh, I wrote a bad rule. You say, yeah, you did. Here's some suggestions about how you could still be accountable but allow folks to be more flexible. And so it's the, the detailed work, but don't just tell the story. Tell the story to where the money flows. Uh, thanks for that. And I, I, I bet you if I asked the folks who administer contracts for nonprofits in the room how grateful they would be if they didn't have to count every single bean every single day and were just based on, did I get this kid an $18 an hour job? I'm sure they'd go through the roof, right? Like probably go celebrate uh, tonight. So that's that's great. Um, Andy, turn, turning to you, you know, locally we've got uh, the Workforce Partnerships Reentry Works Program does some incredible uh, work. Uh, there's a 50 to 60% re- recidivism rate out of our local, uh, that's sort of like the San Diego County typical recidivism rate for participants in the Workforce Partnerships Reentry Works Program, it's about 10%. Think about that. We're talking about dollars well spent, 50%, 10%. What I'm curious about, whether it's reentry or the incredible work going on at the community college district uh, through the uh, San Diego Promise, have you trued up the ISA concept for how many people, either those in, in reentry works or maybe San Diego Promise, how many more people could be paid for using this uh, ISA model in any given year? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I mean, as designed, it's, I, I talked about starting with philanthropy, so we need philanthropy philanthropic gifts to get it started but as designed it's it's actually trying to leverage the capital markets whether um, commercial investors or social impact investors who want to invest in scaling this project for a given population or a given sector um, and are looking for some kind of return and I think we're, we're going to focus on our social impact investor friends because there's a lot of them these days who are willing to um, kind of blend between profit and purpose and we uh, when we kind of set up ourselves and we're getting there um, to accept that type of capital, the scalability um, kind of just goes through the roof. And so we want to start with, we are starting with philanthropy so that we can set the terms and um, we can really set the market. Um, and then we'll invite some of our kind of mission and values aligned um, so it, impact investors to scale. And I think um, that's increasingly interesting to us as an organization is to kind of see where, um, yeah, see where, like, because money and investments is just an energy, and it's up to the people who control them um, to, to if that energy is going to be used for good or bad. And so we, uh, and that's an oversimplification, of course, but we're really interested in unlocking some capital markets to help do social good. And ISAs is one example of um, of where we think we can. And I, I just bring that up because that just speaks to scalability. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, please. Go ahead. Um, because you guys did much more articulate what I was trying to get at at the beginning, which is, well, let me clarify this. Every, it's funny. We have a saying like every philanthropy is a philanthropy, but it's different. Like every philanthropy is different, um, but we're kind of the same in, in a lot of ways. But I think it's worth noting that in both examples, you probably both started with soft money, right? You started with philanthropy, but you still had to do the work to say, here's what we're going to see different for our target population initially, and then this is how we might scale. Not you as an, you may not directly as a nonprofit or as an institution. It's actually going to be when you engage the the bigger dollars, and that's what we like to see. And when I say like I, Irvine, this is where our philanthropy is different. We're a statewide funder, you know, one of the largest. That's not the same as, let's say, a community foundation or a smaller one where you might engage them differently. But for something like this, this is exactly what 
where we tend to go, not because we expect you to create greater scale, even though sometimes we do ask obnoxious questions like, how are you going to grow? What we're really asking is, how are you thinking about the way your organization's mission and activities encourage different kinds of um, more, you know, a kind of public or private sector behavior. So these are just really good examples of when a funder will come in. And these are the kinds of questions that they'll ask. Oh, that's great. I think what you heard from the three people who are up here today and from Dita is a genuine passion for driving change for people who just want enough help to live a dignified life and thrive. And so as you go forward, right, I always love being in a room with 200 people, everybody's passionate to make a difference. We hope that this planted seeds for you and that for the upcoming year as you move forward, that you'll really lean in and drive some of this work forward in your own world. So thank you very much for coming and and, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. 